Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. When I launched this podcast five years ago, my goal was to produce something that listeners like you would come to see as being highly differentiated. And that includes introducing you to brilliant guests whose work you may not have been familiar with before. And I've come to see it as highly flattering that so many of our guests have later been recruited to be on other podcasts. It tells me the themes and topics that we've chosen to explore here are resonating and our new season gets underway with us being ranked in the top 2% of all podcasts in the world based on the number of downloads. Starting with this new episode of the new year, my goal is to stay true to our original objectives while broadening our focus a bit to address ways of supporting you as a person first and leader second. And I picked this guest to specifically punctuate our incremental ambition. Years ago, when I was a little kid, my father took me to play golf for the first time. And I remember it vividly because of what I observed about him. If he hit a good shot, he just seemed to act as if it was expected. But every time he hit a bad shot, which was honestly far more often, he cursed openly and blamed the gods as if they were depriving him of the outcome that he deserved. And my father honestly ruined the game of golf for me, it turned out, because the lesson he taught me was that whenever you hit a bad shot or ran into any troubles or challenges in life for that matter, that merited becoming upset or even angry. If you've read my book, you know my father was no parental example setter of any kind. But his sense of entitlement on the golf course, the idea that everything should go his way, bled into how he approached life in general. And it influenced me, sadly, to believe that life should generally go as we plan it. And when it doesn't, it's a cause for alarm, annoyance, panic, even self-criticism. So today, we're going to explore the idea I so wish my father had taught me at an early age, the idea that life is actually hard. The truth of life is that if we live long enough, most of us will experience innumerable hardships, including the loss of loved ones, economic setbacks, physical ailments, jobs we didn't get, even global pandemics that change life as we know it in an instant. To help us better navigate our human condition, I've invited an MIT philosopher, Kieran Sataya, to join us. His new bestseller is actually called Life is Hard, and drawing upon a whole lot of ancient wisdom, he's found a lot of mature and supportive ways for us to think about life's rough terrain and to even more effectively respond to life's adversities every time they occur. Again, my hope is that my conversation with Kieran will help you personally feel more hopeful, positive, and capable about taking on the disruptive challenges life throws your way. And if we can achieve that in the next hour, we might just help you lead your team with greater wisdom the next time your work plans go awry. Now let me welcome to the podcast, Kieran Sataya. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I appreciate your being here, and I want to get right to it, as I always like to do. When I was in my early 20s, and my audience will know, after having a rather painful upbringing, somebody gave me this book called The Road Less Travel by M. Scott Peck. And in the very first page, like my recollection is like the first sentence, he said, life is difficult. And Kieran, when I read it, I was like, you know, all alone. And I'm just yelling out, hell yeah. Like, I'm like, somebody just said it. 
Like, this is a complete validation of what life is. And so I remember this euphoric confirmation of life as I'd known it so far. And once I had that observation, it just has helped me much more easily accept all the challenges and setbacks that life hands us and that I've personally faced since then. So I've been really looking forward to asking you this. Even if it may seem obvious to many listeners, why is life hard and how does accepting this truth help us in better navigating life? Well, it's a good question. I don't think there's one single source of all the ways life is hard, but there are just a lot of hardships. There's infirmity, aging, or kind of physical frailty, loneliness, grief, failure, the injustice of the world around us, the spiritual hardship, the uncertainty and absurdity about of the universe. And some of us are lucky enough to avoid some of those some of the time, but I think no one really manages to avoid them all. And some of them, for instance, grief, are really inextricable from living well because grief is connected with love. And I think this recognition is helpful to us partly in a pragmatic way. I think it, it just helps not to have unrealistic ideals for how your life is going to go and then be frustrated that it isn't as perfect as people's social media feeds make you think it ought to be. But it's also, I think, important because a central aspect of living well is living in touch with reality. Like Part of what makes a good life is to really be engaged with the world around you as it is and the people around you as they are. And we can only really do that when we acknowledge the reality of life's difficulties as well as its good sides. You quote philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein as saying that people often suffer in ways they don't express. So when you were just talking about living in reality, and then also the spiritualist Ian McLaren advised in response that we should be kind because everyone we meet is fighting a hard battle. So my next question is, are they both right? Do people suffer in ways they don't express? And are we all living a hard battle? I think most people are living a harder battle than they seem to be on the outside. And I think there is a real path from acknowledgement of difficulty, even in one's own life, to compassion. I mean, I don't think it's inevitable that recognizing that my life is hard is going to make me compassionate about other people's lives. But it can. I think there's a kind of oscillation where you think, I'm dealing with this illness, or I got fired, or my relationship isn't going well, and you feel a lot of self-pity. And then the moments where you you can leverage that into a, a recognition of the fact that you're not alone in this, even if other people are not sharing it. I mean, here, here's a, an anecdote about me that I, I think crystallized this for me. I have a chronic pain condition, and I remember at some point just accepting, realizing that it wasn't going to change. I was just going to have to live with this. It wasn't going to be curable. And initially, my response was incredibly angry. I remember looking across the room with this feeling of bitter envy at people walking by and thinking, you don't know how good you have it not being in pain. And then there was a beat and I thought, I have absolutely no idea what is going on with any of these people. They could be going through things much harder than anything I'm going through. I, I just don't know. And I think there is that moment of connection where you recognize the hardships of your own life, the fact that other people's lives are also hard and it can be a source of solidarity, sometimes a kind of silent, unspoken solidarity. And I think that is the recognition that we should be kind because everyone is fighting a hard battle, a harder battle than it seems if we just look at their exterior. And especially, as I said, if you just look at their self-presentation on Instagram or something where people's lives seem 
unrealistically perfect. You just set that up perfectly. I'm just going to say it this way. Why do we misrepresent our lives in that way? Like, very rarely do you see somebody go on Facebook and say, you know, I'm having a really hard time, having a, having a hard time making my mortgage payment or like you, you know, I've got a chronic pain that I just can't solve and it's made me weary. You don't see those kinds of posts. You see, hey, I'm on vacation or we're out to dinner or we're at a concert having fun. So is that living in reality? Like, what's our human motivation to show people the best of our lives and not necessarily the, the truth of the challenges that we're facing? It's funny. I don't fully understand it. I think part of it has to do with not wanting to complain in a way that will make other people feel bad. You want to share the good news, not the bad news, because you want to make other people happy, not sad. But there's also, I think, a dimension that's much less noble than that, which has to do with shame and pride. I think a lot of the time, people's suffering is a source of shame, even when it really shouldn't be. It's in no way their fault. They nevertheless feel ashamed of sharing it. And the ways in which things are going well, even when maybe they don't particularly deserve those either, can be a source of pride. And the irony is, I think, often, I mean, it's not that we want to talk about the negative things in life all the time, but often the moments where you do risk the shame of sharing that something is difficult doesn't make other people unhappy. What it does is make them feel less alone. It makes them recognize the, the solidarity that they might also be going through something very difficult. I mean, for me, I, writing about this in my book, one of the main things that's happened after writing about my own chronic pain, which was something I'd talked about with a tiny handful of close friends before putting it in a book, was that lots of people say, I'm so glad you talked about this. I have this a similar thing, or here's what I'm going through that I never talk about. And there is a kind of connection there that's liberating. So I think taking pride in things going well is an understandable motive, but it really limits our ways of connecting with each other. So one of the things you said that I, I want to pin down, because I think you hedged on this, but when you acknowledge that your life is hard, you're saying it doesn't necessarily make you more compassionate, but it kind of influences you to lean into it. Is that what you said? I think that's right. I think it can be. I think my experience is one of oscillation. That's to say... Sometimes I feel a lot of self-pity and other times I'm able to, to recognize that I'm not alone in this. Other people have their own difficulties and that this should be a way of connecting. So I don't think there's any inevitability in which way people go, but I think you can respond to the ways in which your own life is difficult by finding them to be sources of connection with and compassion for others. I think those are the moments we should seize on, the moments where it can be enabling compassionate and kind in that way. So let me apply this to a leadership context. If you acknowledge personally that life is hard, life is difficult, and you start to assess what are the elements in my life to contribute to that, whether it's health issues or aging issues or marital problems, financial challenges, you didn't get the promotion you wanted, any of those kinds of things and so many more, if you really accept that life isn't always perfect, do you have advice to managers in terms of how they treat the people that they're working with? Meaning, would you be less, like, I don't want to say demanding because you always have to expect people to do what they're supposed to be doing, but demanding in the sense that maybe less nagging, more understanding that people have more than their jobs as a means to influencing them in a positive way that would actually make them more effective at work. 
I mean, I do think it's always good to yeah recognize that people have more in their lives than their work and that in general, in personal interaction, when people are difficult or things aren't going well, it may not be about you. It may be about other things that they're struggling with. I suppose one piece of advice that I would say applies here and that for me was really pivotal in my experiences of dealing with other people and other people dealing with me is to resist the initial tendency to offer assurance or advice to say, look, it's all going to be fine, or here's what you do, I've got a solution, before you've been willing to sit with the problem. I think the key thing is to be patient enough when people are struggling to listen and let them be struggling, to acknowledge what they're going through. And I think that kind of patience and acknowledgement, it's not just that it's consoling and connecting in itself in a way that establishes relationships that you want to have with people you're working with, But also, you can't really figure out how to deal with a problem until you've acknowledged it and really tried to describe what's really going on. And often those descriptions are the better part of knowing what to do. They tell you, okay, now we can see what's actually causing trouble at work is this problem you're having in some other context. We can actually now think about how to address that. And I think letting acknowledgement come first and solutions come later is a kind of concrete way to reflect in your relationships with people, say, as a leader, your acknowledgement that life is hard, to be not dismissive. So it might go along with being easier on people or reducing demands, but I wouldn't say that's the first thing. The first thing is just to take in the reality and not try to deny it or push it away. Let's dig into that a little bit more. I had a brother, my oldest brother, passed away a few months ago. And I'm sort of public about things in my life and have a big following on Twitter. And so people knew that and people sent me personal messages. And it was lovely, just the whole idea that anybody would even think to say, I'm sorry for your loss. But there were many of them saying, everything happens for a reason. Or as you said, you know, don't worry about it, it's all gonna be fine kind of a thing, you'll heal. What was consoling to me was that people thought enough about me to send me a message of any kind. But I also, in the context of reading your book, was thinking, there has to be a better way. Like you said, listen to what people are experiencing and really digest it before you say anything. But managers face this a lot. They will learn that an employee is going through a divorce or a kid is struggling at home or they're dealing with an elderly parent and they're struggling. And... What do you advise that we do say in those contexts? Well, first, I'm sorry to hear about your brother. I didn't, you know, that must be hard. And I think part of what inhibits people from saying anything is sometimes the thought that they ought to be able to say something useful, like it's going to be fine or here's a solution or it all happens for a reason. And often the most important thing is to say something, even if it seems of no use. So I I think your experience is exactly mirrors mine in that, The most important thing is that someone's acknowledged it. They don't have to solve the problem for you. If they have advice when they've listened to it, that may be great. But it's the actual moment of acknowledgement that is initially consoling and connecting. And so maybe that's a kind of advice to give is is don't say nothing. Don't worry that because you don't have a solution or you don't know how to address the problem, you can't acknowledge it. And often that acknowledgement is itself enough or it's the beginning of a conversation that might actually be productive. But yeah, I think the patience not to immediately try to solve a problem or suggest that it's all going to be fine 
and to be comfortable with difficulty, I think, is a key to this. That's very good advice. And I totally agree with you. There's just something very powerful in somebody just acknowledging it, especially if it's your boss. And I don't know if you realize, but what you said to me at the onset of the question was, I'm sorry for your loss. That must be painful for you. And I immediately went to the experience of my brother dying and what I was feeling. And I was like, that was very powerful. Ten words. Yeah. And you've acknowledged something and you've but you've acknowledged not just the experience, but how it affected me. And the other thing that you said that I really want to punctuate is I think what keeps us from saying anything or influences us to make the awkward, like, oh, things happen for a reason kind of of comment that really doesn't add anything. It doesn't make people feel any better is simply the idea that you are demonstrating to them that you care about them, like they matter to you. That's what people need to feel in that moment. I mean, your example was elegant, but I think we stay away from it because we think, I don't have a solution to this. I don't know what to do about their marriage. I don't know what to do about their child struggling. And so I'm going to get in the midst of this and somehow I'm going to have to help solve this. And that's complicated and messy. So I'm just going to steer clear of it. And just acknowledging it in the words that you did, simply stating, I'm sorry you're experiencing that and that must be painful. That's really all a manager needs to do in those kinds of situations. Am I summarizing that well? Yeah, I think so. And I also think even looking back, I think there's also in a different context, I might have said, was that hard? Or like, how was that? Or like, how are you coping? In a way that the question opens it up rather than even anticipating how you might be feeling. But I do think you're right that people very often, they don't expect there to be some quick solution. So it's not a failing on your part if you can't offer some solution to a problem. No one has that expectation that the person they're talking to has the answer to whatever kind of grief or difficulty they're going through. All these people usually don't. So the fact that you don't should not be inhibiting there. I think, yeah, it, what people need in the first instance is just compassion and attention, that you're not shying away from it. And it's very easy to, when people are going through difficult things, to want to avoid them because it feels painful to have to, you're worried about the interaction. And I think, yeah, you've got to get over that. Let's talk about how best to respond to our own personal suffering. In your book, Kieran, you say that we must fully accept all the ways that life is hard. So your quote is, to open our eyes is to come face to face with suffering, with infirmity, loneliness, grief, failure, injustice, and absurdity. We should not blink. Instead, we should look closer. And then you go on to quote Robert Frost, famous American poet, as saying that when it comes to human suffering, there's no way out but through. So please pin all of that down for us. I mean, the first thing to say is it's the application to oneself of the kinds of things we've been talking about in relationships with others. That's in a way to listen to yourself and to acknowledge and pay attention to what you're going through and, and what's actually happening in the world around you is an essential part of coping emotionally, but also figuring out how to respond to the difficulties you're going through. I mean, this connects to something I said earlier on about the way in which facing up to reality as it is, facing the world as it is, is part of living well. So this is probably the most abstract philosophical we're going to get. But philosophers sometimes illustrate the distinction between just feeling happy and actually living a good life. 
by imagining someone plugged into a simulation where all their experiences are fake. They're the only person plugged in. They're not really connecting with anyone else at all, but they don't know it. So you could feed them a simulation that seemed great, and they would feel happy. They'd be perfectly happy plugged in. But you wouldn't want that for someone you love. You wouldn't want someone to just plug into a machine and never actually interact with anyone in the world ever again. Because just feeling happy is not the same as having a good life engaged with the world around you. And what we really want is the second thing. We want to actually live in the reality of the world as it is. And there's always a temptation when things are difficult to flee from them, to sort of turn away from them. But what we're doing there is sort of, it's like plugging into the simulation. We're turning away from them to try to feel happy, but we're not really living a meaningfully engaged life. And so I think part of the truth behind the idea that there's no way out but through is pragmatic. And part is something deep about the fact that what a good life is, is not just about how you feel. It's about how you genuinely engage with what's difficult in life. And not just in your own life, but in other people's too. So I think that's the sort of reorientation that I think is most fruitful here is that it's not just about how you feel living a good life. It's about connection with the world. And you see that in concrete cases too, not just philosophical thought experiments about simulations. Grief is the perfect example of this because you might think, you know, the best life would be one where I never feel unhappy. But if you never felt the unhappiness of grief, that would be because you weren't connecting with people in genuine loving relationships. Like that's an instance where a certain degree of facing up to reality that it really is awful when someone you love dies is part of living well, even though it hurts. So I think that the shift from thinking about what we're going for in life in terms of happiness to lived engagement with the world around us in which we're doing as well as we can that's part of what I think we get from fully embracing the difficulty of life. Well, we'll stay on the theme of grief. There's so many other forms of grief. Something doesn't happen the way you hoped it would. A relationship goes south. People feel grief over many, many things. You know, losing in the soccer, the World Cup. You know, you have people that are going to be grieving over the fact that their country didn't win in the World Cup and that's a form of grief. But I would say that as a society, what happens is oftentimes, and we'll take the World Cup out of this and really talk about just traditional forms of grief, that we're, we almost tell ourselves, suck it up, you know, man up, get over it, rather than going through, as Robert Frost says. So where does that advice come from? Because it's contrary to what you're talking about. Well, there is a long answer, which is that there is a long philosophical tradition of arguing that there should be a kind of philosophical solution to things like grief. So Stoic philosophy, which is currently enjoying a resurgence of popularity, mm -hmm. part of the idea there is, well, if you can't control something, you should just detach from it completely. And since you can't make people immortal or bring them back from the dead, you should just shut yourself off to that. And of course, you can see the attraction of the self-protectiveness of not being hurt by things you can't control. But the truth is, those things really still matter. And so I think there's a kind of, I don't, know, I don't want to say cowardice, but there's a failure of courage in not being willing to deal with the aspects of the world that are painful. And it's understandable because they're painful that we flee from them. But we should have the courage to embrace them or at least acknowledge them. And that doesn't mean embracing them doesn't mean being passive in the face of them or saying, I'm not going to try to make the best of this. Very often, the way to respond once you've acknowledged something difficult is to think, how can I change this? How can I make the best of it? How can something positive come out of this? 
it may not be that everything happens for a reason, but that doesn't mean I have to say there's no good to be extracted from this situation. So I, I embrace all of that, but I, I think just denying the difficult realities, while it might save you from a certain kind of pain, is a failure of engagement that really isn't a kind of positive way of living in the world. Have you learned to be patient with grief? So whatever circumstance occurs that creates grief, let's say it is a death, you don't get over that overnight. Coincidentally, I just heard an interview with several parents who lost children in the Sandy Hook massacre in Connecticut 10 years ago. And I've seen many of these parents interviewed over the years. And initially, there was just pure anger at what had happened, anger and shock. And then it sort of migrated into a feeling of needing justice. And now, 10 years later, they interviewed several of these parents, and the conversation was about their favorite memories of their child. It was joyful to listen to this. You would think that as they're thinking about it, I lost my child 10 years ago, that there would be grief. And instead, they had transitioned into remembering the best of their child and leaving the rest behind. But that was a 10-year journey. Yeah. So when we, we think about dealing with people around us who are going through grief, how do we not lose sight of the fact that simply acknowledging that I'm sorry that, in my example, your brother passed away, that must be painful. How do we support people by helping to keep it alive and asking more than once? That's a great question. I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all strategy as part of the problem. Different people experience grief and process it in such different ways and at different timescales. So a lot of it really is just trying to respond sensitively to whatever the person you're talking to or interacting with is going through or whatever you're going through. I do think there are ways of thinking about, sort of impatient ways of thinking about grief that we should push back against. And a lot of these, there's social science to back this up. So there's the idea, for instance, that grief proceeds in these five predictable stages. And I can never remember what the five stages are. But at any rate, it turns out that when people have tried to empirically confirm whether this is true, the answer is no. It's sort of a stress reaction. It's all over the place. There isn't a kind of predictable pattern to it. And the other form of impatience that I think the social science tells us we should resist, and this may connect with your question in a way, is it turns out that forcing people to process grief before they're ready, so making them sit down and talk about it when they're they're not ready to talk about it can be very counterproductive. It can actually make things much more difficult for them. Mm. So part of the patience is accepting that you're not ready to really deal with this now and that the person you're talking to might not be ready to talk about it when you are. And you have to sort of defer to the timescale of your, your own timescale of the person you're dealing with and that you can't really, there is no general rule for that. So in a way, I think I'm saying, yeah, I think the patience is key. But beyond that, it's very hard to generalize because grief is so particular and personal and every loss is so unique. What do philosophers say about the value of compassion? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I think one of the, the sort of central ideas that I think philosophers have explored here is the idea that there's a deeper connection between or a less clear contrast between your own life going well and the lives of people going around you going well than you might think. And I think the contrast between happiness and living well is useful here too, because if you think of what you're after in life as your own personal happiness, then it seems like, well, compassion for others 
maybe not a good idea. It seems like it might be very painful to care about other people and could be very upsetting. And there's no necessary connection between my happiness and theirs. But as soon as you shift to thinking, what I want to have is a good life. I don't just want to feel happy. I want to be engaging with the world well. I want to be living well. It's easier to see that living your own life well isn't really extricable from how you're relating to other people and whether their lives are going well or whether you're, you're responding to their lives well. So I think one kind of philosophical framing for thinking about compassion is not to think of it as intention with your own life going well or a kind of threat to your own life going well. It's only if your goal was just to feel happy that it would pose that kind of threat. It's really part of this unified ideal or endeavor to try to engage with yourself and those around you as thoughtful and responsive a way as you can. You talk about infirmity as being one of the human conditions that literally causes us pain. And when I was reading it, I was also thinking about aging. So you don't call it out. I think the inference is that as you get older, you know, you're going to start to pick up infirmities. But it also adds to kind of what we were talking about, dealing with one's own mortality. So what's the best philosophical wisdom you've found to support our addressing these? Yeah, I do think it connects with aging. I think aging is the kind of form of incremental infirmity and disability as you get, you just experience, you know, bits of you hurt and there are things you used to be able to do that you can't do anymore. And so even if we're not dealing with some specific medical condition, all of us are increasingly dealing with forms of infirmity. I suppose the two things that really stand out for me are one about the loss of abilities. I think this applies to physical disability in general, but also just the little disabilities that you can't walk as far or run as far as you used to and so on is that once you have a kind of pluralistic view about how life is, that there are many different ways of life that are good, there are many different relationships that you could have that would be good, there's all kinds of different good things in life, in fact, more good things in life than any one of us could possibly engage with in a lifetime. It's clear that no one can have it all. And so while the loss of a certain ability, maybe you can't play tennis anymore, or maybe you know your eyesight isn't as good as it used to be, these kinds of disabilities deprive you of access to some good things. But no one has access to all the good things in life anyway. Mm. We're always living partial lives. And there's more than enough good things to make for a good life, even if some of them are closed off to you. I think that's one piece of wisdom that's really useful here. The other for dealing with pain for me that's most useful is that in a way it has to do, I think it maybe extends to other kinds of suffering too. It has to do with temporality. So I have a chronic pain condition that's mostly not debilitating, but it interferes with daily life. And one of the ways in which it's most difficult is its temporal dimension, the way in which there's a kind of anxiety about whether it's going to interfere with my life tomorrow or the fear of it getting worse or how it's going to interrupt you know, whether I'll be able to sleep tonight. And I think there's a kind of advice there that has to do with a philosophical interpretation of the idea of living in the present, which is that, you know, here's one way to put it, one day of moderate pain is fine. You can have a pretty good day while in some degree of pain. And really, life is just one day after another. If you could experience it in units like that and not project into the future so much, if you could really live in the present, it would be much easier to cope with physical pain. There's a line I like from the Kimmy Schmidt sitcom on Netflix where she says she's trapped in a bunker for 15 years and she says her way of coping is with the mantra, you can stand anything for 10 seconds. Now, I'm not sure you can stand anything and 10 seconds seems a little short, but I do think there's some truth in the idea that you can have a pretty good day while some things are going badly. 
And the more you can cling on to that truth, the easier it is to deal with difficulties. And I think this connects with aging in that that's an insight that often people start to appreciate more of necessity as they age is how decent a day you can have while also yeah, various things are creaking and aching. That really internalizing that truth is a kind of philosophical guide to orienting ourselves to the ways in which infirmity is inevitably going to make a difference in our lives. It's really wonderful. And I want to punctuate another truth. So the primary truth is that life is difficult. But one that you just said is that no one has it all. And it was interesting because Warren Buffett's number two man, if you will, I think he's like 97, 98-year-old Charlie Munger, billionaire investor. He was quoted this week as saying that greed isn't what people are motivated by. It's envy. Yeah, right. Right. And so when I thought of that, and then um, no one has it all, that's a healthier perspective than the idea and the thought that that guy has it all or she has it all. And I don't. Were you familiar with this? Did you see him say this? I know I didn't see him say that, but I totally agree. I mean, I think, one of, I think my experience as someone who is in professional terms quite successful is there's no point at which there isn't someone who's much more successful. There's really nothing or, or has some other kind of success that you don't have. So if you were measuring yourself by that all the time, you are guaranteed that no matter how well things go for you, you're going to be able to reframe them in a way that makes you feel bad about yourself. And yeah, I think the key to that is not to say, well, I'm going to become the best at everything in the world or have everything good. That's not realistic. It's to try to push away from this envy comparison based way of assessing your own life. Pin that down just a little bit more, if you would. Let's say you want to be a professional golfer and you're really, really good and you make the tour, you know, and you're in the top one half of one percent of all golfers in the world. But you don't make anywhere near as much money as the best players. Tiger Woods, we'll say. How do you get up in the morning and say, well, you know, why am I continuing to play golf here if I can never be number one, if I can never be the best? How do you soothe people who want to do better in their lives but haven't been successful in the sense that they're number one, if you will, but they're doing great work and they're having an influence and they're thriving? but they can't necessarily see it because they've stacked themselves up against other people and don't like where they stand. I'm not sure, in truth, emotionally, how to <laughs> fully make that transition. I think intellectually, part of it is recognizing the sense that there's some point at which that feeling of comparative inadequacy would go away is an illusion. That it's not as if, were you Tiger Woods, you wouldn't also be able to then look at someone else and say, well, I'm great at golf, but I'm not very good at philosophy, or you know, I, I don't run a successful business. You're always in a position to beat yourself up comparatively in that way. So intellectually, I think, recognizing that this is not a satisfiable desire, the, the sense that somehow that other person has it okay as an illusion is the first step. Maybe this connects in a way to the earlier conversation we were having about looking at other people and recognizing that everyone we meet is fighting a hard battle because it goes along with a, a kind of idealization or fantasization about what other people's lives, the ones you envy, are actually like and not really taking in that they have their own hardships and they're the people they envy too. So intellectually, I think we have to recognize that. I mean, often I think there is work that people do in therapy has the form of sort of getting them from that intellectual realization to really internalizing it and in how they feel about their lives. Because I, I think there's often, there is a gap there where you can intellectually realize something, 
but your feelings are sort of, it's, it, they lag behind. It's hard to actually adjust emotionally. But intellectually, I think that's the first step towards reframing things. Yeah, I like the word fantasy that you use, that no one has at all. We tend to fantasize that, well, that guy, things are going great for him. And we don't realize all the different challenges that that person faces or, or will be facing. And I think if we accept that a little bit better intellectually, it affects us emotionally. Like we go, yeah, you know, that's, that's true. I think you can make peace with it, starting with the head and working into the heart. Right. That's the beginning of the emotional change. And then you've got to sort of let your, your worldview catch up with the realization. Yeah. Well said. Even before the COVID pandemic, loneliness in society was becoming a crisis. And you note, Kieran, that people were already losing connection with other people before then. They had fewer trusted friends to talk about important matters and were experiencing real health consequences due to isolation, social isolation. So how did the pandemic make things worse? And how do we remedy the suffering that comes from not having our deep human need for social interaction and friendships? routinely met? I think the most useful thing to recognize here, and this illuminates the problem too, is that this sort of need we have for social connection is very deep, but it's actually fulfilled to a surprising degree by even fairly superficial connections. That what we really fundamentally crave is acknowledgement by others and respect from others and compassion from others. And that's not the same as deep friendship, but it already scratches the itch for recognition and acknowledgement. And so I think that's useful because it tells us that even when deep friendships seem out of reach, just little interactions, we have kind of brief conversations with people. You know, there's an experiment, psychology experiment, where commuters on a train were made to go up to a stranger and find out one fact about the stranger and tell them one fact about themselves. And they were initially like, ah, I'm not going to do this. This seems very awkward. But in fact, it was fine. They were never rebuffed and they almost always felt less lonely afterwards. And this was, you know, a five minute interaction. So I think it takes much less than we think to start to feel socially reconnected. And that is the first step towards deep relationships, deep friendships and love that we may really want in the end. But even those first steps are really meaningful in themselves. And I think this also illuminates what the pandemic has made so difficult, why it's been so difficult. Because as well as the difficulty of staying in touch with friends during the pandemic, both the pandemic and the fact that people are working from home and working remotely in this sort of late pandemic stage, the little moments of interaction face to face that used to populate our days have now been diminished. We may have thought, well, as long as I can still see my close friends, why does that really matter? Turns out it really does matter that just those little interactions play a significant role in giving us a sense of social meaning and social recognition. So I think the fallout of the pandemic is really ongoing here. It wasn't just during lockdown. I think it's still a kind of social problem. And I think recognizing that little moments of connection really matter is a fruitful sort of step forward here. And it's probably a step forward that matters a lot in people's workplaces where sometimes you have real connections and friendships at work but there's also just the little interactions with work acquaintances that you might think don't matter, but they really do. They really are part of our sort of meeting our social needs as social animals. And I think people really realize that during the pandemic. I actually read research on this recently that you're probably sourcing here 
they use the language micro connections. Uh-huh. So running into somebody in the hall or in the cafeteria or going to the dry cleaner and talking to the same guy you talk to once a week when you drop off your clothes or the guy at the grocery store, those little connections lead to human thriving. And I've had people tell me, particularly in interactions on Twitter, where like I don't really need to have friendships at work and I don't really need to be in the office. And, you know, I have plenty of friends at home and I'm thinking, well, from one point of view, if you're isolated for eight, 10 hours a day, you're getting no connection, but you're missing out on connections that you don't realize are so important to you. And that's the point you're just making, which I'm so grateful you did. I think this is totally, it's right. I I think I actually don't know the particular research you're citing, but it's continuous with work that was done by John Cacioppo and others who's a psychologist who who worked on loneliness. And yeah, it seems exactly, it seems right to me. And I'd be speculating about how this connects with the great resignation during the pandemic. But I do think speculatively, one thing that happened was that people weren't working in person and they thought, man, I'm getting a lot less satisfaction from my job. And that can make it seem like this wasn't the right job for you. And that may sometimes be true. But what might be happening is also just that a big part of what made the job work for you were all these micro connections And that, yeah, when you take those away, it's hard to really feel satisfied. But that's not necessarily because this was the wrong career. It's because doing it in person was genuinely profoundly different from doing it on Zoom for eight hours a day. I don't think I've heard anybody make that point. So that's very, very insightful. And I'm sure is resonating with a lot of people listening to this. You know, something else that you said in terms as a remedy for loneliness is to attend to the need of others. I just thought that was just wonderful. So can you speak to that from a leadership perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that, again, both the philosophical thinking about friendship and the social science suggest is that one of the key ways in which a friend is genuinely a friend is that they care about you, not even about the friendship. So one of the examples I give is that, you know, you're in hospital, you're sick. If a friend comes to see you for the sake of the friendship or because friendship demands it or something, you that, that's not what you want. You want them to just think, oh, and Kieran's sick. I'm going to go and visit him. You want it to be out of direct concern for you. I think that's one of the ways in which friendship is continuous with respect and compassion, where the core is recognition of the value of another human being, another human individual. And they're all on a, on a continuum there. And that the way into friendship similarly has to do with attending to other people and having them respect and have compassion for you. And then the friendship is a kind of side effect. Like that comes about sort of as an unintended consequence of this. And I think something similar applies in leadership contexts where in a way the first thing you've got to do is care about the person, not for themselves, genuine recognition, not for what the effects are going to be on their productivity or what you can get out of them. Those things are the side effects. It might well be that as a result of genuinely thinking about the person, their work life is better and things go better at work. But that has to be a kind of side effect of genuinely attending to the needs of other people. I think we can exploit this. We can sort of rely on the continuity between respect and compassion and love in order to build from what might just to begin with be just respectful concern for someone else into friendship. And it it may not become friendship. It doesn't have to. But I don't think they're sort of wildly different things. There's a continuity between them. Another thing that makes life hard is failure. Failure to achieve goals that are important to us or having our dreams upended by outside forces 
poor planning or bad luck. And so what can philosophy teach us about how to best respond to life's failures? And I'd say big and small. Well, maybe we can start big. I mean, I, I think <laughs> one of the temptations here that we have to resist is the temptation to think of our lives in terms of a grand narrative. There's a kind of impulse to think of yourself as the star of your own Hollywood movie. And what's the big project? What is the defining plot line? And I think that's a really problematic way to think about our lives, both because it puts you at the risk of failure that's life-defining, that this was the mission of your life, and now it's not just that you failed in this project, but you are a failure, but also because it's blinkering. It's a way of thinking about your life in terms of one central pursuit that's just going to force you to miss out on the great diversity of relationships and connections and other activities some of which are projects, some maybe not, that give your life meaning. So I think at the large scale level, pushing back against the idea that we need to have one grand mission in life is really important. And there's, there's a history to this too, which I tell a little bit of in Life is Hard. There's a historian, Scott Sandage, who wrote a, a wonderful book called Born Losers about the way in which the idea that not just a project or a task but a person could be a failure, really originated in the 19th century. And it comes connected with sort of thinking about people in terms, in financial terms, basically, and the idea that you can rate whether someone is, rate someone's life overall by, say, a credit report. Or a net worth. Yeah, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that idea that there's a single currency in which you assess success, failure for a person, it's optional, it's historically recent, and we don't really need it. I mean, there will be failures in our lives, but we don't need to think of people as failures or successes. And part of doing that is to resist the idea that any one project defines us. There's just much more to any one of our lives than any single narrative through line. You know, we're not the heroes of Hollywood movies. You know, it made me think of, we were having a little bit of a conversation before we started, and I was telling you that I had been invited to a podcast and I wasn't familiar with the host. So I Googled them just to like, who are they? Are they an author or, you know, what is their background? And the question that Google gives you is, do you want to know their net worth? Uh -huh. <laughs> like, and I'm like, wow, like, no, that's not where I was going at all. I just wanted to know who they were, you know, what their show was about. So somebody thought to program that in as if that's where people are going. When they want to know about someone, they want to know how much money they have. And I just, I, it was really stunned me when I saw that. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a particularly kind of frank instance of, of thinking, like the one question that will define this person is is this financial one. And yeah, no, I, I think that's a particular form of this sort of grand narrative vision of what a life has to be like. And, you know, it, it might not be net worth, but it could be fame or the number of followers you have on Twitter or something. You can find other currencies too, mm -hmm. but it's a mistake to invest too much in any one of them. It's not to say you shouldn't care at all about whether you're making a good living, but to think of that as defining you, any one of these as defining your success or failure as a person is distorting, I think. That's wonderful. How has philosophy taught you to deal with the uncertainty and ambiguity of life? I mean, I feel like life is more ambiguous than any time in my, my life. How have you learned and how have philosophers influenced your thinking on dealing with stressful, volatile, unpredictable times? Well, I think it's not easy. And in the spirit of our conversation, the first thing to do is to acknowledge that it's not easy. There's no... There's no way to sort of pretend away the fact that this is an uncertain, volatile time politically, globally, with climate change. There are a lot of things to be scared about. 
And I think the insight that for me is most helpful here has to do with hope. I feel like often when we're faced with uncertainty, we're prone to a kind of black and white thinking. So I think about climate change. I think, should we hope or should we despair? And actually asking, you know, should I hope? Is hope good? Should I resist hope? Is hope a kind of a form of wishful thinking? That's not a good question, really. I think it's useful to stop thinking, should I hope or despair, black or white? But remember that the question is always not whether to hope, but what we should hope for, where to direct our hope. So amidst all the uncertainty, it's not all good, it's not all bad. The question is, what are the good things we could realistically hope for and strive for? That's the question that should guide our response to uncertainty and guide our lives. I think thinking of this in terms of hope is helpful also because hope really thrives on uncertainty. It's it, In a way, hope is the attitude you have when you don't really know how things are going to go. And that makes room to try to imagine what's possible and then commit to it. But yeah, I think black and white thinking is is the biggest danger when we're faced with uncertainty, feeling like we have to resolve the uncertainty one way or another, either by becoming unrealistically optimistic or by giving in to despair. That is so well said. And even in your book, you said hope is a concession to what you cannot control. And I just love that. Everyone, the heartbeat round with Kieran comes up next. But right before, I'd like to ask you to please support our podcast by going out of your way to introduce us to your friends and colleagues. If you can do more, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts or pick up a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart, that's now been taught in 10 American universities. Your visible signs of support are truly what motivates us to keep this podcast going, truly. Oh, and one more thing. I speak all around the world, so if you have an event scheduled this year, I would love to be one of your presenters. Now, back to the show. Karen, ever since we launched this podcast over 100 episodes ago, we've taken a brief break away from our discussion and transitioned into what we call the heartbeat round. So what I'd like to do is ask you actually literally a dozen questions about your life, philosophy, and influences, and have you answer each one with a quick, instinctive answer. In other words, answer each one in a heartbeat. Are you game? I am game, yes. All right, here we go. For someone interested in gaining a better grounding in philosophy, one introductory book you'd recommend reading? Well, I have to admit, I'm going to fall at the first hurdle here. I promise my other answers will be more heartbeat-like. I should have a good answer to this, a quick answer to this, and I always struggle with it. The two things that came to mind are Bertrand Russell's book, The Problems of Philosophy, which is an old one, over 100 years old, and then a recent book I read by the journalist and author Megan O'Giblin called God, Human, Animal, Machine, which was a really personal but philosophically rich introduction to questions about the nature of the mind and immortality. So those are the two I'm going with, but I still think I need a better answer. Well, it's a good start. Thank you. And just a plug that my best friend in the world introduced me to your book and I asked him, do you have any questions? And this was the one that he had for you. Okay, good. Well, I, hopefully one of these books will be interesting to him. Outside of philosophy, what should be required reading for every human alive? Not an easy question. I would say right now, maybe David Wallace Wells, The Uninhabitable Earth. Prediction about the future you're pretty certain is going to come true. This is generic, but it will get worse before it gets better. <laughs> Well, I've had a guest tell me it's not going to get better, so that's encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hopeful, remember? Yeah, I I have hope. Good. A trait you most admire in other people? Humility. 
Besides love, what does the world need more of? I'm going to go with class consciousness, as in recognition of the ways in which wealth structures so much of our experience and that focusing on restructuring that is going to be the biggest way in which we have a more loving and more just world. Thank you for explaining that. That's very, very helpful. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? I'm tempted to go with humility again, but I I could also say how to pay attention. Go on. Well, I, I mean, paying attention to the people around you. I think that one of the themes of my book and of this conversation has been the importance of listening and acknowledgement. And I do think that for anyone leading any group or really anyone having interactions with any other human being, that's both a difficult and a centrally important way to make other people feel like they matter and then treat them ethically. Your synonym for the word heart. I would go with compassion. Piece of advice you'd give your younger self. This is very practical. I would say hold on to your friends. Don't let the fact that you've moved or that you've drifted apart allow those bonds to break. Hardest philosophical question to answer. Honestly, they're all hard, but I'm going to go with why is there anything at all? (laughs) Kind of bummed me (laughs) out hearing that question. But they were all, as I was looking them up and looking at them, I thought there's none of them that are like solvable that are fun. (laughs) So (laughs) one thing people would be surprised to learn about you. A few people know this about me. I play simulation baseball online, historical simulation baseball at a very high level. I used to be incredibly competitive. I've eased off a little bit, but that's a significant hobby in my life. So that means you like draft players from major league teams and you assemble your own team and then play against others through some sort of an algorithm or how does that work? Exactly. Yeah. It's historical. So it's not just contemporary major league players. It's any player throughout the history of major league baseball. And in fact, not just major league baseball, there are players from the Japanese leagues and the Negro leagues and the, in the simulation I play. So yeah, it's, you draft a team from of players from all of history and then you play against other people on a, a kind of simulation platform. Wow. Unusual. A person alive or not that you'd most like to have dinner with? Iris Murdoch, the philosopher and novelist. I think she she's my biggest inspiration in many ways. And she died in the late 90s. So we overlapped at points when I could conceivably have met her, mm. uh, but I never did. And I'm fascinated by her as a person and a thinker and a writer. And then finally, a quality you consider most essential to your own personal success. I'm going to go with one that I think is sometimes a negative quality, but I've come to appreciate how important it is for me, and that's impatience. How interesting. I'm going to have to tell my wife that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a strength, honey. It's a strength. Kieran, these are great. Thank you so very much. They're really, really wonderful. And the entire conversation so far has just been so provocative. These were great. So thank you. Before we go here, let me ask you, what are you hopeful for? Well, there are things I hope for in my personal life and for my family and friends. At a larger scale, I hope that we get it together to weather the storm of climate change, which is going to be bad. I hope it's not too bad and that we come together behind policies that will will lead us to a, a world in which we have renewable energy. And we do it in a way that minimizes the injustice that's currently the kind of structures climate change, whereby the harms have been predominantly caused by people in the West and are predominantly going to fall among people in Africa and Asia. And I think those hopes are not unrealistic. It's always two steps forward, one step back. But the last few years have seen real progress on these issues, and we need much more. 
But I remain hopeful that we can really make things better than they seemed like they were going to be even five or 10 years ago. Kieran, thank you on behalf of my audience so very much for joining us. You remind us that life is hard, but of this whole conversation, you've also reminded me at least that life is pretty good. And you've added a lot of joy to my experience today. So thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Best to you. Take care. Bye-bye. As we say goodbye, I want you to know I have several truly extraordinary guests lined up for you and look forward to sharing their episodes with you in the coming weeks and months. And I, of course, want to acknowledge my wonderful team, Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And until the next time, I close things out with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.